Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I am doing well. Today on the show, we have Alan Keck, a Republican running for governor. Jasmine, we interviewed a Republican running for governor on the show. Did we go much more hard on him than we would on any other Democrat? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Is that fair? No, but it's our show and we can do what we want. And uh, he I will say he was game to answer anything we asked him. He yeah, he definitely he definitely answered those questions. He did not give us the answers we wanted. Uh, I think we 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 did our best to, to push back. I think that there was a lot of, you know, if you have been engaged in debates about about trans folks or abortion over the past couple of years, you're going to hear those uh, arguments repeated. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I really do appreciate him coming on. We also talked about other important stuff like how we would uh, work with cities, even Louisville, how he uh, hopes to fund some of his plans, given what he said about income taxes and sales taxes. A lot of good pieces of this interview, I thought. So uh, Jasmine, what, what did you think about Alan Keck coming on the show today? I really liked that he wanted to come on the show because I think, You know, we do, we have some Republican listeners. A lot of our listeners have Republicans in their family. And so, you know, I think there is something for people to hear from him. And he's, he's not just the same kind of Republican that many candidates are. Um, And I think he's very, he's very genuine and upfront with his answers. And, you know, I, I think while we probably could have, we could debate a lot of these issues that we disagree on for forever. Um, we try to keep our interviews to 30 minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we just have to, you know, let those things lie. But I do think it was a really good interview. He was super nice to talk to. Um, and it'll be something different for our listeners to hear. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I will say that like his people reached out to us and and, and asked to, to come on, which I mean that that shows a lot. Like we're we're willing to even talk to you guys. That's been a big part of his campaign is just uh, being willing to talk to just about anybody who who wants to do it uh, and is willing to, to listen. So yeah, and and I mean we we live in a Republican state. Uh, the Democrats who win are few and far between, and and this wing of the Republican Party is you know the one I hope wins if we're going to be governed by Republicans. That's uh, how I feel about it at least. Um, anyways. We have lots of other stuff to talk about before we get to that interview. The legislative session has adjourned sine die. Uh, so that means they're done for the year unless they have to come back in for a special session. And a lot of stuff happened. Uh, you know, this has been a really terrible legislative session, but it ended with a bang. A couple of pieces of good news. Um, Kentucky legalized medical marijuana. Kentucky legalized sports betting. We'll talk about the details of those things uh, as they passed. And then also some some other, some other stuff we wanted to talk about, like the bourbon barrel tax repeal, um, which we've talked about, but which was finalized. We'll talk about a, a few of the compromises that happened during the veto period. And then also as the it, the waning moments of the legislative session, we learned about some committee changes from some, I guess, members of the General Assembly that the Republican leadership found problematic. So Jasmine's going to go through all of that for us. But without any further ado, let's talk a little bit about medical marijuana. All right, Jasmine, the last we left this issue, it was pretty clear that the Kentucky legislature was going to pass SB 47. So the Senate had already passed it. They had been the stumbling block in years prior. Uh, and, and so the House did give its final passage to the bill uh, during the final two days of the legislative session there on, on last Thursday. 47 Republicans in the House did vote to pass the bill along with 19 Democrats. Ashley Tackett-Lafferty, the Democrat in Eastern Kentucky, did vote against it along with 32 other Republicans. In the end, it wasn't really close. Uh, it, you know, More than 60 people voted for this bill, and the day after it passed, Governor Bashir signed the bill into law. The event was pretty bipartisan when he signed it. You know, lots of Democratic and Republican lawmakers uh, were, were there. Jason Nemes gave the governor a hug. That was that was nice. It was a camaraderie there. Uh, and, and also there were a lot of patients. I thought that was a really powerful moment. Some people who would really benefit uh, from, from this legislation. So this bill allows for medical marijuana for cancer, severe or chronic pain, epilepsy, MS, muscle spasms, chronic nausea, PTSD specifically. Those are the bill those are the conditions that the bill specifically names. And then it also potentially allow, allows for the treatment of other conditions. 
Um, we'll get into that in just a second. So the, it's a no-smoking bill. There's no smoking of marijuana allowed, but it does allow for vaping. vaping um, and home cultivation is also not allowed in the program. The bill creates uh, a program that d- depends very heavily on a group that, that's called the Kentucky Center for Cannabis. Uh, that's the group that's going to determine the conditions eligible for the medical marijuana program and for reporting on the program. So this group was actually created last year in a piece of legislation that passed, and it kind of envisioned a potential future where Kentucky would have a medical marijuana program. The center is actually housed at UK, the University of Kentucky, and the membership is not statutorily defined. It it just says that this will exist at the University of Kentucky. So I guess UK or the group itself is kind of determining who's going to be in the group. Uh, So basically, UK has a lot of power over this program and determining what conditions are treated and how how reports uh, about the program will be released. I will say, you know, here at the very beginning of all of this, it's really hard to say what the program is going to look like when it's fully implemented. Uh, I'm I live really close to Bardstown Road in Louisville, and there's a lot of head shops within like five <laughs> blocks of my house, and I'm just envisioning immediately that they're all going to flip to dispensaries uh, right away. Um, that that's kind of my vision, but I don't I don't know. Maybe it won't go that way. Maybe it won't be as fast. Maybe it won't be as viable as as some of those places hope it will be. Um, we, we'll just have to wait and see. And we all we're gonna have to wait uh, quite a while. The bill doesn't actually go into effect until 2025, which is significantly longer um, than it would be uh, under a normal circumstances. The bill had to actually stipulate a for a future date when it would go into effect. So after passage, and this is kind of what I, I don't know, Jasmine, I'm, I'm interested in what you what you have to say about this. Uh, you know, after the bill passed, Governor Bashir took credit and he said that his executive orders and his work with a medical marijuana advisory committee and his call to the legislature to pass this bill, to pass a medical marijuana program, led to the legislature passing this bill. And of course, the legislature didn't like that very much. Uh, and neither did many of the candidates running for governor on the Republican side. Daniel Cameron had a strongly worded tweet saying that the legislature defined deserved credit so so jasmine i'm just kind of interested first um on what how much credit you think the governor you know deserves on this point and also what you think about the program as it's created and any comments about that i give the legislature the credit for passing the bill this has been something that some of the more moderate republicans have wanted to do the last few sessions but i don't know if it wasn't made a priority but it it just never made it across the finish line. So they certainly get credit for getting the votes to do it and getting it done this session in a short session. They absolutely get the credit for that. But I do think that Bashir's executive order put pressure on them this year in an election year. And so uh, I guess he can (laughs) give himself credit for exerting (laughs) this power to put pressure on them, Uh, which is, you know, that power, I just hate that power struggle altogether. Yeah. I just hate talking about it because <laughs> it's like, I I think Bashir has been a really good governor. There are two, my two biggest criticisms that I have about him have to do with how he feels on like criminal justice policy sometimes. And then just like the complete inability to, to speak with the legislature and the, the legislature never has to do anything he wants to do, but I wish that relationship was better. Yeah, I, I, I don't wonder if, if a lot of that is kind of like two-sided. Uh, the legislature isn't really interested in talking to No, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't I don't think Bashir has had an, much of an interest. Yeah. In, uh, well, I mean, what, what is the thing that uh, I remember one time Barack Obama was like, everyone keeps asking me to have dinner with Mitch McConnell. Why don't you have dinner with Mitch McConnell? Uh, and, and I'm like, why don't you sit down with Robert Stivers? I don't want to do that. He's like the thinnest skinned dude in the entire world. You'd be like, he's like, he ate with his left hand. I was deeply offended and left. Like, I don't know. I have zero interest in oh, I'm not I'm not the governor, um, but I, but I can see how that would be frustrating. I don't know if he had a much better relationship. I just don't think that the people who are in charge of the legislature are able to to work with a democrat i just don't think that that's yeah i don't think that they are either but if i was the governor i would try really hard (laughs) yeah you'd hire rocky atkins and and uh, other people who anyways i will leave that to where it is i don't (laughs) think i don't think that if 
Andy Bashir were not the governor right now that this bill would have passed. I, I just think that the reason it passed is because there is pressure. There's a Democrat who has yeah. a high chance of reelection. This is an issue he thinks is important to him. And so the Republicans want to take it off the table. And that is what has created the situation that has given us medical marijuana. Yeah, um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So so that's kind of where it is. I'm glad that we uh, agree on that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I do. I, every time people talk about the governor's bad relationship with the legislature, I do get a little bristly. So I'm sorry if I was being there, Jasmine. But that is, uh, I don't know. No, I, I totally understand it. And I think it certainly goes both ways. But I just wish it was better. Just yeah, there, there, there's probably there's probably more that he could do, uh, but I do think the Republicans yeah. have shown that they haven't been able to work with a Republican or a Democrat in the governor's well, office. So, you know, that's that. Matt Matt, Matt Bevin was a different <laughs> a well, different hey, thing, though. You know, it is what it is. Uh, all right, that's enough about oh. medical marijuana. Jasmine, tell us about sports betting, which also passed. Okay, so five years after the. SCOTUS ruling that paved the way for states to legalize sports gambling, Kentucky has finally done it. Um, And so kind of like medical marijuana, there's been support for this bill in the House, um, but the bill has always died in the Senate. And this year it passed out of committee before the veto period, uh, but they waited till the last day to vote on the bill on the floor. Before the veto period, Senator Damon Thayer estimated that the bill needed a couple more votes. He said, I think he said he believed it needed one to three more votes. And so they were waiting till after the veto period to try to get them. Um, Matt Jones of Kentucky sports radio has like done a lot of like kind of behind the scenes work, um, trying to figure out if this bill could pass um, and shared on the radio and on Twitter that people he believed the people that he believed were no's on the bill, but said that he would not name the senators who were on the fence because he believed that people calling and emailing them and calling them out would, would just decrease their chances of being swayed. Um, But in the end, two of the people that were, he assumed to believe to be no's Brandon three, three of the people who he assumed to be knows Brandon Smith, Brandon Storm, and Senate President Robert Stivers ended up being yes votes. Max Wise and Donald Douglas, who were not included in this list of hard no's, um, they voted against the bill. Donald Douglas actually did not vote and then registered his no vote after the bill had the votes to pass, which seems like like the weakest. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes they do that, though. That's like a legislative (laughs) process where you're just like, if we need you, can you do it? And you just hold out. Yeah, yeah. It is pretty pretty weak, though. Very true. Yeah, so, you know, I... I, It seems like... And this is kind of what Matt Jones said, and, and I don't know if this is true at all, but it seemed like Max Wise and Donald Douglas wanted to vote no, and they're pretty... Max Wise is certainly high profile because he's on a ticket as lieutenant, as a lieutenant governor candidate. Chair and of the Donald education Douglas, committee. You know, he's, he is a high yeah. profile even beyond that, I think, for people right. in the legislature. Yeah. And, and Donald Douglas is a newer senator, but has a district that can be competitive and is, has kind of been someone that they like let sponsor legislation as a freshman and things like that. So so maybe they're being protected a little bit. I don't know. I think that they're definitely people who both have strong relationships with the leadership of the Senate. And, you know, they, they both are good at um, getting their initiatives to leadership and also are good soldiers. So that's probably what they were doing there. Um, ready to vote yes if they had to. So just a little bit about what the bill like looks like, because I think that's probably what the people want to know. Um, the Horse Racing Commission will prom- promulgate administrative regulations. They have six months to promulgate regulations. So it could be a ways before we actually have a system in place. But Damon Thayer has said that there's some pressure. I don't know if pressure is the right word. Encouragement, maybe, um, to have regulations and a system set up by the time the NFL season starts. But that he, you know, he couldn't promise that uh, it's up to the Horse Racing Commission. 
people will be able to bet online or at a licensed facility. A a facility can contract with no more than three service providers to support wagering. So the service providers would be um, people like FanDuel that are supporting like their online betting. So they can contract with up to three providers to do that. And a licensed facility of shall be an association under KRS 230-300, which is someone with a license to conduct horse racing. So um, that's something that we've talked about before. Like if, if this was ever going to pass here, it would be something done um, that you could do at horse racing tracks. So um, that's who can be a licensed facility. So you'll be able to do it at like Churchill Downs, Keeneland, places like that. And so um, then the taxes. So nine point, it'll be taxed at 9.75% of adjusted gross revenue at a licensed track. 14.25% for online and mobile betting. And then the bill also cre creates criminal penalties for tampering or making wagers that are in violation with the law um, and establishes a gambling problem assistance account. Um, so that's what the sports gambling bill looks like that we've passed. And hopefully in the next few months, we'll have regulations and a system in place to start being able to bet. Yeah, I'm looking forward to all of the podcasts that are sponsored by gambling sites to have in their safe harbor in Kentucky call this number. So, you know, that's, that's <laughs> what the, uh, they always have to do that for all the other states. Yeah, again, another one of these bills where I think because the governor took a strong stance on it, pushed the legislature to actually pass it before the election to take it off the table and also just to allow us to bet. Um, you know, I'm sure the tracks are happy. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the horse racing commission is happy. Uh, it is kind of a, a natural fit, but also, um, you know, that that that's kind of those are the people who get their stuff stuff accomplished a lot of the time. Um, another bill that wasn't close in the end. Very clearly, leadership was was kind of clamping down on this. Um, they didn't even really need those two extra votes. They were allowed to vote no. And yeah, I think it passed pretty, pretty easily in the end. So, yeah, um, I think they got two, two extra votes than what was needed to pass with 60%, which is what you need in a mm -hmm. odd number you dear. Yep. Well, uh, there you go. At the, at the end of the session, a uh, silver lining for uh, all of the terrible other things that happened. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about HB5 as well. So HB5 is the bourbon barrel tax repeal. Um, so, you know, this bill passed the House before the veto period with a pretty narrow majority. And over the veto period, legislators were working and then introduced and then passed a changed bill. Uh, which then went back through the Senate process. And, you know, it, it anyways, it, it became law. The governor did end up signing the bill. Um, we talked in previous shows about all the gory details about removing uh, the, the bourbon barrel income uh, from local governments and how that was going to work and how it was going to be graduated out over a long period of time. But the upshot is that a lot of people were very worried about places like schools, emergency departments, fire departments, a lot of local services that county and local governments in central Kentucky, where the, the distilling industry exists, where a lot of these warehouses are housed, um, would, would lose um, the revenue that they would lose to support this. So th they did make some changes to the bill before they passed it, including a formula to essentially freeze the amount that schools and fire and emergency departments receive uh, and then to be funded back with state money. Um, however, you know, local leaders, even with this compromise, still were not pleased with the changes. Uh, you know, there's expected to be a significant growth in this industry, and it basically just freezes it where it is. So they are losing a lot of future revenue. Um, and they, their opposition was not placated at all with these changes, even though they were moving towards their position. The, the coalitions who passed and opposed this legislation were very bipartisan. There were six Democrats mm -hmm. voting for the bill, 25 Democrats voting against it. So it's like very divided caucuses in both sides of this issue, um, which just kind of, you know, they, there is a very robust debate kind of on both sides of the aisle. I mean, 
Um, my state representative, Josie Raymond, called it a corporate handout about 65 times in her floor <laughs> speech. Uh, and, and I agree with that. But I mean, I also um, I, I understand the argument that this is a key industry to Kentucky. It brings a lot of tourism. It brings a lot of other kind of revenue outside of just direct taxes. So I, I hear that. Um, I don't agree, but I do understand the argument. So, so you know, they debated and they won because we're a pretty conservative state that likes big companies, I guess. Um, after the passage of the bill, you know, there are these two jubilant, we passed sports gambling, we passed medical marijuana. I do feel like after the passage of this bill, basically everybody was like, <laughs> nobody was super happy. Uh, Chris McDaniel, a senator, uh, he, he said, quote, there was a lot of work to be done to rebuild those relationships. And that's what he said to the bourbon industry about their their local partners i mean they have to live with these people a lot of the times um and and that's they i do feel like these relationships um with these between these companies and these local places which had been very symbiotic very much give and take between both sides is now definitely swinging towards the the company companies at the expense of the local local leader so we'll see if anything is done to uh to repair that my guess is going to be no but jasmine do you feel anything different um how did you feel about how this kind of whole process went down after the veto period ended i i agree with you i kind of feel the same way about this bill as you i i know the vote count on this one was was maybe one of the oddest ones in terms of Democrats or Republicans split on it, but I, you had so many local officials testifying about how devastating this bill would be, and I don't support it. Um, and I don't know what to do to to what they're going to have to do to rebuild those relationships. But you know, there you have it. There you have it, indeed. Uh, uh yeah, it, it is what it is. I guess that's what I like to say. Um. <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, Jasmine, why don't you talk to us? Why don't we move on? Uh, just like this, just like in the actual legislature, the end of this segment is meh. Let's move. <laughs> let's move on to talking about some of these committee changes that happened at the very end of the legislative session. So this was kind of the very last bit of news coming out of the 2023 session, and it was a list of committee changes for several GOP legislators. So the members removed from committees were Felicia Rayburn, who was removed from three committees. Um, She's on four, so now she has one. Josh Calloway was removed from two. Steve Doan was removed from two. And then Mark Hart, Nancy Tate, and Kim Mosier were also removed each removed from one committee. Um, and so they, you know, each kind of made statements about that. It, it seemed like the person who was the most fired up about it was Felicia Rayburn, who lost three committee assignments. Um, she said, I was kicked off my committees based on the decision that I made to appeal the ruling of the chair on Senate Bill 5. It's, it was a retaliation issue they told me Callaway was removed from his because he signed the paper to second the appealing to second the appealing the ruling of the chair. Um, she said, we'll continue to deal with this as a supermajority, the amount of power that leadership thinks they have over the body until the members of leadership are removed and the Republican majority has the ability to use their inner voice. And she said that they'll just have to elect new leadership and that certainly they freed up some of her time. Josh Calloway, who filed amendments to Senate Bill 5, which was the book banning procedure bill, um, which kind of led to the next day, the passage of Senate Bill 150 with all the additional stuff in it. Um, And Josh Calloway said, I said that I was risking my positions for the protection of children, and this is the end result of the risk that I took. Steve Doan, who is a freshman legislator who defeated an incumbent um, as, you know, running as a more conservative candidate. That's one of the Northern Kentucky folks that defeated a committee chairman, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he gave a statement to Joe Sonka, the Courier Journal, saying that he believed his removal, which was related to his motion to lay the gray machine bill on the table um, and also his support of Josh Calloway's efforts on Senate Bill 5. and. He said that he imagines leadership does not want him to have too many opportunities to speak out 
and that he spoke his mind and led with his independent conservative record and that he'll continue to do the same. Um, all the all the members removed from committees, with the exception of Kim Mosier, supported Felicia Rayburn challenging David Osborne's ruling that Callaway's amendment was not germane to the bill. Um, so it, it seems like that has something to do with it, certainly. Um, Nancy Tate also, though, speculated that her removal from the Families and Children's Committee could be related to her what she said, very vocal involvement to trying to make changes to House Bill 248, which was a bill related to recovery housing regulations from Representative Hebron. Kim Mosier um, didn't want to criticize leadership in the way that maybe some of the other legislators were willing to do. Um, she said that she's consistently focused on strong policy, which moves our Commonwealth forward including ensuring that Kentuckians have access to quality health care. I take my role very seriously. So she didn't say anything about why she believes she was removed from committee, but Felicia Rayburn said that she believes Mosier was removed for her Neanderthal speech against House Bill 470, which was the language that eventually became Senate Bill 150. The one thing that I thought was interesting about this was um, Savannah Maddox, who is normally very in step with legislators like Felicia Rayburn um, in the more conservative wing of the party or or Northern Kentucky Republicans like Steve Doan. Um, she did not seem to get any heat from leadership, but she was critical of the removals and she gave a statement saying differences of opinion are to be expected when you have a Republican supermajority of 80 people and no two members will see eye to eye on every issue. However, I am troubled by the fact that punitive measures were employed to chastise members who I believe were acting in good faith and doing their best to represent their districts. A couple days after this, there's a picture of Kelly Kraft with Savannah Matthews. So yeah. Maybe they're seeming up now and she, uh, is more in good graces with other Republicans. I'm not sure, but I, I, I thought that was interesting that, you know, she is kind of usually part of that coalition and um, didn't see anything like that, but it does seem to be related to this Senate bill five amendment. And then maybe also Kim Mosier's, Kim Mosier being too moderate and saying we're not Neanderthals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, okay, here's what I'll say about Savannah Maddox. Like, she's really dangerous, right? She she hangs the governor in effigy. She hangs around with violent extremists like the three percenters and all this kind of stuff. She's significantly more politically astute than a lot of the other people in this movement. Yeah, always, I think that's correct. Always has been. Like, she's, I mean... She ran for governor, dropped out when she realized she wasn't going to win, be able to parlay that into something different. She pulled her gun bill at the end of the session because she found out it wasn't going to pass to help improve its chances of passing in the future. She she knows how to play the game because it's a game to be played. If you want your bills to pass, you got to play the game. And I, I feel like a lot of these other folks are just ideologues. Um, Felicia Rayburn, Josh Calloway, Steve Doan, they're ideologues. They do the things that they think are right no matter what happens to them, and they got to face the consequences when they do that kind of thing, which includes losing their uh, their committee assignments. I do think it is kind of interesting, and it does kind of like give us a little bit of a glimpse into the, the Republican caucus's struggles with SB 150. It's one of the things we've speculated about quite a bit, but it does feel like Leadership didn't want it to go the way it went, and they haven't been able to control their caucuses. Like, especially in the House, they haven't been able to control their caucuses and get the kind of bills that they want. They they, they are trying to strike compromises, probably. I feel like, uh, you know, um, Senator Carroll's amendments and changes to SB 150 would have been a, a, a very, a much better resolution than the one that we received. But it is just, it's probably not possible with the Republican caucus that we have. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I don't think as of this moment that Republican leadership is in position to lose their their spots to, you know, more conservative legislators. But it definitely feels like that moment is coming when um, people like Felicia Rayburn and Josh Calloway will be able to exhibit more pressure and more power over some of the folks um, kind of the more moderate or, uh, you know, 
you know the david osborns and um and and the the folks in leadership currently so i don't know i don't know what's going to happen um I, I you know probably it's better to have these folks off committees though i think uh just as as in the upshot uh they won't be able to say crazy things anymore uh in in committee rooms but that's uh that's where it's that's where that is yeah my my favorite thing about all of this was senator adrian southworth's tweet who <laughs> this Happened this treatment her, right? started with her who she was removed from all her committees but one um and she said that the big news for today is that I'm welcoming three legislators to membership in the one committee caucus. Congratulations on having more flexibility to dig deeper into legislation and be responsive to constituents' needs. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess it's nice to be able to take it. Uh, so uh, you know, take it take it well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think you're serving your constituents by being <laughs> removed from committees. I don't know. You know, I guess it's, it, you know, even Adrian Southworth is capable of spin sometimes. <sighs> All right, Jasmine, one quick get before we get out of here. And that is at, right after Signy die, right after the end of the legislative session, we received information that Whitney Westerfield, the senator from Hopkinsville, was not going to be running for re-election in 2024. He's been in the legislature since winning his first election in 2012 and almost beat Andy Bashir for attorney general in 2015. Came within just like a few hundred votes, I think, of of defeating Andy Bashir. Um, he tried to run for AG again in 2019, but dropped out pretty quickly. I think fundraising issues and the fact that Daniel Cameron was the selection of Mitch McConnell kind of played into that. Um, and you know, he's still pretty young. He's not, I, I think he's younger than me. I don't know. I think he's, he's around my age, if, if not a little bit younger than me. Um, and, uh, that, uh, I think it definitely is possible that he may be back in the arena someday. Um, yeah, I, I think it does speak a little bit to the waning power of moderates in, um, in the, uh, the Kentucky legislature, but, uh, I don't know any thoughts about, uh, any thoughts about Whitney Westerfield decided to hang it up, Jasmine. I was really surprised to see this. You know, he ran two really difficult, high-profile races and lost, so that has to be really tough. But his his Senate seat is secure however long he wants it, you know. Um, and so I was surprised to see this, but he does have two really young kids at home and has travels from Hopkinsville, I think is where Mm -hmm. he lives. And so I can definitely see how that would be tough. Um, And I think you're right. I think, you know, there's still plenty of time that he could become involved in government when his kids are, are older, out of the house, that kind of thing. Yeah, it is really, really difficult to be a legislator and be um, be, a, be a parent. We, we have seen um, most of the people who have children are within a day's drive of Frankfurt. Um, I did that analysis one time, and that was really what popped out to me. Um, it's really tough. Um, and we see a lot of retirements for, from younger legislators uh, for, for that reason. He did always seem to enjoy it. Uh, you know, I do feel like he, 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 isn't, he isn't one of those people who's just like, I just don't like it anymore. Uh, maybe he likes it less than he did uh, in, in the past. And maybe that, that's a reason why. But, um, you know, an in, in interesting development for sure. We'll see who comes out of that um, seat soon. It is, you know, y- you're probably right that he had that seat as long as he wanted to. Hopkinsville, Christian County, one of the more, um, you know, one of the places Democrats would hope to be competitive. Probably aren't right now, though. So, but it definitely will be a race to watch for sure. All right, let's get to our interview with Alan Keck. Alan Keck is the mayor of Somerset and a Republican candidate for governor of Kentucky. He was first elected mayor in 2018 and was reelected last November. During the campaign, Mayor Keck has expressed support for increasing teacher pay, protecting pensions, incentives for parental leave, and more options for cities to raise revenue. He'll face Daniel Cameron, Kelly Kraft, Ryan Quarles, and several other candidates in the Republican primary, which is just next month. Um, So, Alan Keck, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thrilled to chat with you all for a little bit this afternoon and uh, talk all things Kentucky. Absolutely. Well, uh, we're we're really excited to speak with you. You know, your your candidacy has certainly been intriguing and interesting to us since we first learned about it. Um, you know, we went through several of your policy statements in Jasmine's introduction there, and to be honest, you know, we're 
surprised to see uh, a lot of those positions coming from a Republican. So, I mean, just in terms of your political philosophy, can you tell us what it means to you to be a Republican? And if you were in charge of the Republican Party today, how might it look different uh, than, than it does? Well, the first thing I'd say is that, you know, I do believe in responsible government. I believe that there is such thing as uh, good, accountable, responsible government. I, I said on the night that we announced that government should do whatever is necessary really, really well. It should be great at it. And then whatever is not necessary, it should get out of the way. And so I still fashion myself as a limited government conservative, uh, but also somebody that doesn't believe that good ideas have boundaries. And I'm not concerned uh, if I think a certain idea might not uh, be as Republican, per se, um, if I think it's a good one. And I think it's one that can move Kentucky forward. The other thing I'll say is that for, I think, the last at least 20 years, we have too often allowed the national discourse to guide and force us into things locally uh, that inherently might not impact us. And, and so with that, uh, we're talking about things that we think definitively impact Kentucky. And I'm focused on ideas uh, that are, I believe are common sense and that will help us, you know, sort of solve some of these generational challenges that we face with. What we're doing is not working. And so we're going to try something a little different. Sure. Uh, and, you know, like a lot of those ideas, you know, teacher pay, you know, pension uh, you know, making sure we protect our pensions, parental leave, and, and, you know, I don't know how you feel about pre-K or anything like that, but a lot of ideas similar to the ones that you've expressed are ones that, uh, you know, the Democratic candidate for, for governor, uh, you know, Governor Bashir has expressed support for before, but his biggest obstacle in getting a lot of his agenda passed has been the legislature. So, you know, I, I don't see the legislature moving their positions on a lot of these things, uh, no matter who the governor is. Um, so wh- why is it that you feel like you'll have better success than he's seen? Well, I'm going to start by I'm going to talk to him a lot more than he has. I mean, the governor and the legislature seem to never communicate. Uh, I'm a big believer in the Reagan philosophy that we'll get a lot more done when we talk to each other instead of about each other. Uh, that also starts with listening. You know, I don't have all the answers. There, there will be some of these policies that need shifted, need tweaked uh, by the legislature. They have constituents and they understand uh, their part of the state perhaps better than any executive might. And I think that there's strength in that. You know, the Bible talks about wisdom in a multitude of counsel. The problem is we often elect people with the ego so stinking big, they don't listen to anybody. And I'm not wired that way. I know that uh, I've been blessed with a, a skill set that uh, allows me to bring people together. I cast vision, encourage and empower. But, you know, equal to that, I think God gave me a, a level of self-awareness to know what I'm not good at and where I need holes plugged. And in that instance, we're going to surround ourselves with a competent team that can get some of these things done. You know, the last thing I'll add to that is that the governor has talked about a lot of these issues, but he never proposes uh, ways that we're going to pay for them. And I, I think that's another separator is, you know, the game plan, when we talk about growth, it will allow us some of the resources and the funding to get these things done. And uh, while often we're celebrating new economic development investments, we're not talking about who in the world is going to work at these facilities and I think that, that that plan has to be comprehensive, and we feel like we've offered it. Well, I had a follow-up on, on the legislative thing, so we'll, uh, I'll put a pin in that for just a second and ask you, yeah, about the funding piece of this, uh, you know, a lot of these things – Cost money, and you know, you you've suggested, like many Republicans, uh, support for the idea of getting rid of the income tax. And I believe that the the words that I've seen you use is punitive, uh, which isn't an uncommon thing for a Republican to say. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you do plan uh, to uh, to to be able to fund a lot of these programs if we you know reduce the 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 income tax uh, on on citizens? Uh, reducing the income tax by one percent is thought to cost uh, more than what the state funds higher education for, uh, and the income tax is 5% right now. So that would be a very serious hit to to our funding uh, if we were to get rid of it. Yeah, it's going to have to be multifaceted, and we do have to have an honest conversation about it. Uh, I, I think that at some point, we're going to have to have the conversation about raising the sales tax. You know, there's not going to be enough revenue from these 35 new sources, uh, services to accommodate it. So that's a piece of it. I think the larger issue at hand is we need more people living in Kentucky and we need a higher percentage of those that are living here working here. 
and that will allow them to have more money to spend, which then helps us in a consumption economy. You know, when we, we compare ourselves, and then I'll make a final point on this, we compare ourselves often to Tennessee as a model, uh, sometimes Indiana, Ohio. Uh, but what we really haven't heard is the rest of that story. Those states, let's, let's speak to Tennessee specifically, while they have no income tax, they also have local options. And those local communities have the ability to control their own destiny, to reinvest money that's spent in their community to allow it to grow and flourish. And subsequently, Nashville's Nashville and Louisville's Louisville. And so I think that has to be a piece of the puzzle. Uh, and, and then the final component, you know, when we look at, at getting people back to work, we have 42% of Kentuckians that can work that aren't. And that's then going to put them in a lower income bracket. They're not going to pay an income tax at all. And then under our model, they wouldn't have a lot of money to spend, so they're not going to tax on that. We need to raise the bar uh, where, you know, oftentimes people will talk about this policy being regressive to poor people. And, you know, on the surface, I understand that argument. What I say is let's have tax policy that creates fewer poor people than focus on just how it's going to impact the ones that we have. And again, I'm going to point back to Kentucky's 100-year history here. We're 48th in almost everything. (laughs) What we're doing is not working, and we need somebody that has the history of getting things done. I said the last thing, and I'm not trying to pull Matt Bevan here and close with three different last things, um, but we we have to get creative on ways we're going to get folks back to work, and I think that involves second chances for folks that are struggling. You know, we have generational drug abuse here, and we have gotten really innovative and creative uh, in Somerset and Pulaski County about making sure that those that are looking for that second chance uh, get to go back to work. One other point just about the, the, the revenue and income piece. And, and you know, the sales tax sure. being a major por- part of income replacement is is something that is cited by, by nearly every conservative in America when talking about tax policy. Reducing the income tax by 1%, in order to replace that revenue, we'd have to raise the sales tax to about 8%. And that's just to reduce it from 5% to 4%. And that's just to replace what we're doing today. A lot of your ideas cost a lot of money. They're going to cost additional revenue than what we have so are what you're saying is what you're saying that we want to reduce the income tax to the point where it's zero and replace that with a sales tax to then fund even the additional ideas that you have or what is what does that look like how how could that possibly work well and again i think the, the numbers you're showing probably look at a static population and a static workforce participation rate and if that's the case the math will never work you know i've also i've also said in speeches Einstein can't solve the math problem we have in Frankfurt with the the amount of people we have here living here and working here. So growth has to be a a component of it. Uh, And I'll look, I'll point back to what I've done. You know, people said what we accomplished in Somerset was impossible too. Uh, in the last 10 years when Kentucky just had their second slowest decade of growth, uh, we beat that by two and a half X, not two and a half percent. They grew it under 3%. We grew it over six, over 200%. Um, you know, the other thing is my private sector experience of putting people to work and being more efficient. Attrition can be a beautiful thing. You know, oftentimes in government, we have 13 people doing the job of 10 paid like 13. Uh, in an efficient private sector, you got seven doing the job of 10 paid like eight. And there are ways to get more efficient in a multi double digit billion dollar budget. I can promise you there's there's uh, waste and, and uh, inefficiencies. And as the CEO in the private sector and now as mayor, you know, we have the ability to solve some of that. And so, you know, to assume that we can't cut some costs without cutting services is also a lie. You talked about, you know, what you've been able to do in Somerset. And we wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, your time as mayor. You're the only person running for governor who has been a mayor. And on our show, we talk a lot about local government, especially here in Louisville, where we're located, though. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your exper- how your experience as a mayor will inform how you would approach being the governor? Yeah, there are so many similarities. I appreciate that question, Jasmine. It's uh, We deal with the, the same things that the governor is going to deal with almost daily, just not to the same scale. You know, issues like public safety, issues like infrastructure, economic development, dealing with the legislative body. You know, I have one of the larger city councils uh, in the state with 12 and, you know, needing to work alongside of them. Uh, and, and in my case, it was a, a pretty stark generational divide. You know, they weren't inherently uh, Keck supporters when I started. And so that same listening process and engaging process that we went through in Somerset, bringing them on board to our vision, learning from them, 
had to take place. And so that experience, I think, is vital. Uh, learning and listening from other mayors and county judges uh, about their experiences. There's over 400 mayors in the Kentucky League of Cities that represent cities across Kentucky. As you all know, 120 county judges. And so um, listening and learning from those folks, appreciating their concerns, but then also knowing some of the solutions and ways we can navigate it, uh, I think will be critical. And I think the people of Kentucky will greatly benefit from a leader who's had boots on the ground that understands those local issues and can take them statewide. Yeah. And you've obviously become familiar, you know, with the ways that local and state governments interact and intersect. And in the last several legislative sessions, people here in Louisville have called several pieces of the Republican agenda, the war on Louisville. Um, So bills that seek to preempt decisions made at the local level. So um, do you think preemption of local priorities is appropriate? And, you know, would you support it as governor? No, I look, I'm a, and I don't know which specific piece of legislation, so I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I, I will paint broadly on the, the back half of that question, which is local control. Uh, I'm a huge believer that uh, decisions made closer to the people is best. It's more representative and more accountable. You know, when I go to Kroger or church, I got to face the music on the decisions that I make at home. And, you know, things that a governor or congressman, senator might not have to deal with. Um, you, you might develop some thick skin, but you also learn a lot of lessons in that. Uh, so I don't think that, that we should uh, be doing too much in Frankfurt that is going to really uh, violate home rule, if you will, and, and preempt local control. Uh, I suspect there are exceptions to that, although I'm, I'm struggling to think of any off the top of my head. I think, you know, what really comes to mind for me are a lot of bills that have specifically targeted the Jefferson County public school system. And so it's, it's a bill that has language in it that says only applies to counties with a consolidated local government. And that's only Jefferson County. And so that's certainly one, but there have been others that have to deal with increasing pension obligations and and things like that. Yeah. Creating other small cities within uh, Jefferson County is another big one, allowing for Mm -hmm. the creation of small cities that bill actually passed last year. And there's been other similar uh, changing the size of our, uh, city government, um, changing the number of representatives we have. There's been a lot of a lot of opening up of the merger document over the past few years. Yeah, well, I, I think that um, the first issue you brought up is really interesting to me. Um, I, I see the point. You know, Jefferson County Public Schools have long um, struggled, and at, at some point, I think that if there's not going to be any, in, any internal accountability and progress, then then I see the need. Uh, for some action. Uh, my wife is a product of those public schools, by the way. She went to Louisville Southern, um, first-generation college student, has done very well working her way through college uh, to become a registered nurse. Uh, so, you know, I think that maybe the intent behind that is to to make things better there. You know, we need our largest city and largest community to be thriving, not struggling in education. Um, the second things, the second and third pieces that you mentioned, again, I, I don't have intimate knowledge of, uh, but as an overall rule, I don't like things being done uh, that violate local control. And I'll give you one other example of that. Uh, Some of my more conservative friends in the General Assembly don't like this idea of a potential local sales tax. And they said, well, that's the last thing we need is another tax. And of course, I pushed back and said, well, that's exactly what I need is Big Brother in Frankfurt telling me what's best for my community. And, you know, so there's times where we cherry pick liberty and, you know, all of a sudden they do know what's best for us. I think we need to avoid that as a rule. Yeah, I think cherry picking liberty is probably something that we, we've talked about with with different kinds of legislation on our show before, um, whether we've called it that or not. <laughs> um, but Kentucky, well, I, I do call it that just as an aside. I, I think that. No, yeah, as, I think that's what it is. <laughs> as, as, as a party, there are times where, um, you know, we've been certainly guilty of it. Um, I, while, again, I'm a proud conservative, I'm also not afraid you mentioned pre-k earlier you know i talk about education and the two lies grand lies i think the lie from the left is that you can't believe in school choice and public schools but the lie from the right is that somehow pre-k and early childhood education is a democrat idea and therefore we shouldn't do it um i don't believe those things and i'm willing to pick on my party if they think if i think they're wrong yeah well we always appreciate a universal pre-k shout out on our show as well oh there you go (laughs) 
Um, but Kentucky has a lot of great cities. In addition to the merged governments in Louisville and Lexington, we have a lot of smaller cities like Somerset, Owensboro, Ashland, Covington, Paducah, Newport, E-Town, Richmond, Henderson, many, many more. Um, so yep. how can state government support local leaders in these small cities to ensure that people who live in small and large cities continue to, to thrive? Yeah, I love that question. And I know I'm talking to folks from Louisville when Owensboro, Henderson, Somerset, and, and Richmond are small cities. <laughs> Those are some <laughs> of the largest cities in Kentucky, by the way. But I know it's okay. I know from the Louisville perspective, they are small. Uh, what, what I would say is that Kentucky is, is a rural state. Um, and, and that's okay. You know, we really only have two slash three metro areas. And now we need to lean into that. I think it's one of the things that makes us special is that the diversity of the state, both in, in geography and economy, um, and honestly, the types of people. I mean, agriculture and the farmer in the West is a lot different than uh, the downtowner in Louisville and a lot different, different than uh, the folks in the mountains in East Kentucky. And that's okay. Instead of fighting about that, which we often hear about, urban rural, uh, I think if we'll focus on the things that unite us, you know, I even, we had a sister city event with Louisville years ago before COVID, and it was centered around music, art, food, and spirits. And, you know, people in Louisville loved it. People in Somerset loved it. They were mirror events a week apart. Um, and I think too often we focus on the things that divide us or that make us different instead of the things that, that can unite us. I'm going to try to get back to your specific question. Um, I think those cities all have something to offer. As mayor, one of the first things that we did was recreate a brand so that we could adequately tell our story. You know, I saw Somerset as this great community, uh, sort of a hidden gem, if you will. And, you know, with that, I wanted to tell that story loudly and proudly. And uh, we've done that, which has led to the historic growth, the, the record economic development, record downtown revitalization and revenue across all sectors. Um, it's not because I'm special. It's because we had a special community and we just kind of turned that blank canvas into something new. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you had to say about, you know, leaning into our, our rural identity. And I also think that the people that live in some of those small cities could probably lean into their urban identity a little bit more. I think sometimes people are afraid of feeling like they're part of a big city. But, you know, people in Louisville, a lot of us live on half acre lot or less, just like a lot of the folks in a lot of those small cities. It's not a lot different. It's the, the type of lives that we lead are, are not not a lot different than uh, than some of the smaller cities in our state. Um, I, wanna... I think that's I think that's super fair. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I want to turn a little bit to, to some of the issues that have really dominated this uh, session. Um, so, you know, you you guys recently had a debate, you guys being all the Republican candidates for, for governor. You, you recently had a debate, and I, I will say Jasmine and I were both pretty disappointed to hear that you say – hear you say that providing gender-affirming care for, for trans kids should be criminal. Um, can you yeah. tell us, like, why specifically you do believe this way and, you know, what your relationship with the trans community has been in the past? Do you know any trans? people have you talked to any of the trans people about this specific issue yeah uh I, I appreciate why you would say it and i think you know the the question on uh, affirming care i think you know for me it would not include um so, some type of therapy or um assistance i'm talking about the surgery as an adolescent that's the only piece of that that i think would be criminal uh i, I have to to your latter question talk to folks in that community uh, I'm not going to say in a robust way, but certainly I've had conversations. Uh, the issue for me is their children. And this is a, a decision that you're making for the rest of your life. And I, I don't think that, that we're prepared to make any life-altering decision of that magnitude um, at that age. You know, I used the example then, and I think it's, I'm, I'm not trying to be cute or funny. You know, we, you're not allowed to go get a tattoo. You're not allowed to go buy a can of dip until you're 18. And you can't go buy a beer until you're 21, but you can radically alter your life forever. And I think that, um, you know, in, in our teen years, as we are changing and, and developing our identities, uh, it's just premature. And I recognize we're probably not going to agree on that. Uh, I always hope that in an instance like this, you know, folks can, 
agree to disagree with civility. Sure, I, I think that that's fair. I would say I, I kind of brush back at the idea of, you know, some sort of vice being equated with a healthcare decision that's made by families and children together. But we, again, we'll, we'll, we'll just leave that right there. Yeah. But I do want to connect that back to um, what you had talked about, about growth. Uh, and if you look at the places around the, this country that are growing the fastest, places like Phoenix, Arizona, Nashville, Tennessee, Austin, Texas, uh, places, uh, you know, Miami, Florida, to some extent, you know, places that are growing the fastest in this in this country they are urban areas and, and and involve a lot of young people who are often uh you know the same types of people who showed up in frankfurt at the end of this legislative session to protest uh sb 150 as it was being passed so you know with everything that you have have dreamed of everything you put in your platform and you talked about how important the growth of the state and the increasing the population of the state is to your vision how do you comport that with some of these social views which are anathema to the growth that has been seen in the rest of the country well i'm going to take exception to it i mean you're right that those cities have all grown but i think aside from phoenix and i could still argue it's purplish red you know those are major cities in red states uh very red states and so i think the state policy still really matters and influences those cities ability to grow and flourish uh sure i think quality of life uh, is important in those communities um and, and the other the other thing I would say is, you know, I don't think 15 and 16 year olds are making the decision to pack up and move. Uh, their families might be. And at that point, they're going to be old enough to make those decisions, even in Kentucky. Uh, the, the, I don't know if it's the last thing I'd say. That, that's a really interesting discussion. I, I had a, a CEO of one of the most prominent companies in Kentucky ask me something very similar. But uh, I think that's only looking at it through that lens in support of that issue. You know, we're seeing countless families move to Kentucky from urban areas, um, Colorado, California, Arizona, because they actually like the values that we're talking about. They want a slower life. They want um, a more rural area. I think COVID exacerbated that to some degree. But, you know, San Francisco might be the most progressive city in America. And candidly, it's turning into a dump. And so there's a slippery slope nature to some of these policies that if we're not careful, get out of control. And you end up with, you know, again, incredible amount of crime, incredible amount of homelessness um, that aren't healthy for communities and that aren't going to be conducive for growth. So I, I think there's a there's a balance that has to be towed somewhere there. Sure. You know that we are certainly sorting as a country into um, our political beliefs, defining where we live. And you are seeing a lot of people from Louisville and, and Lexington moving to places like Denver or, or Los Angeles or, or Oregon uh, and, and in the same sort of ways that we're seeing some conservative folks from those urban areas move to, to more rural areas like, uh, you know, like smaller cities in Kentucky. It's just, uh, it's certainly a part of a trend that's been happening nationwide. But let's bring yeah. it back. Can, home. I, can I say one other yeah. thing, Robert, sure. to this? Because I think this is important, at least so you know my heart on the issue is that and I say the same thing about teachers, you know, how we say things and how we treat people still really matters. You know, I, I don't necessarily have to agree um, with this issue, but I can tell you, you know, if I were to encounter a trans youth or an adult, they're going to get treated with love and kindness from me. Um, you know, and, and that may seem counterintuitive. I'm saying they can't have a surgery and I get that, but no different than teachers. I, I challenge Republicans all the time. We're never going to have teachers vote for Republicans and we're not going to be able to fix public education if we simply demonize them all the time. And so I, I do think there's a layer even when we, um, you know, I disagree with men cheating on their wives, too, by the way. Like there's a lot of things I'm going to take a stand against um, that, that doesn't impact necessarily how I'm going to treat somebody as a human being. I guess what I would say to that about saying publicly that you believe that that should be criminal is that. Trans children's mental health, it, they're at such a high risk for suicide. The suicide attempt rate is extremely high. Um, the suicide like ideation and consideration rate is really high. And so, I mean, like you say that you would have kindness towards them. And I truly believe that about you. But I mean, what does it say when you say things like this should be criminal when say they've felt this way since they were? 10 years old and at 16 their gender dysphoria is so bad they they want to have some kind of affirming surgery and and bills like this it it really does a lot for their acceptance and how they view themselves and their mental health and and so i mean what would you say about that yeah. I, I think the one thing that that i think is harmful for society at large is the 
we have put such a focus on sexuality at all levels. I mean, we're now talking about eight, nine, and 10-year-olds. Look, I was playing G.I. Joe and um, wiffle ball at 10 years old. Uh, you know, now my kids, they're getting taught things in the third grade that I didn't think would be comfortable until they're in the eighth or ninth grade. Uh, social media is incredibly toxic. I use it. Um, politically, it's a great way to reach folks. But honestly, I think it's a disaster for society because it's not just trans folks that have body dysmorphia. I mean, the level of depression and mental health and suicidal thoughts in young people that are comparing themselves to everybody else's highlight reels at an all-time high. I mean, these are, you know, now on, I think it's Snapchat, you know, they're, they're pushing um, LGBTQ and trans things as filters at a really, really young age. So in a way, and I would go back to maybe even like Caitlyn Jenner, we've almost glamorized it instead of saying, yeah, this might be something somebody's really faced with and they deserve care. But it, I don't think any level of this stuff needs pushed at the level that it is at the ages that it is. And maybe that makes me old fashioned. I don't think I'm a, you know, old curmudgeon conservative by any means. Uh, but I, I don't know that any of it's healthy for our society. I just think that a lot of people know certain things about themselves at a pretty young age, what they might want to do, where, you know, where they want to be in life, who they are, who they like, and I, and those kind of I've things. I've seen it. I've seen it kind of compared to for, for a really long time, really until the 50s and 60s, all children were taught to be right handed. Uh, and, and we didn't really allow for left-handed children to even exist. And, and once that methodology of teaching children went away, the number of left-handed children increased steadily and then plateaued because we just simply allowed the people who lived their lives that way to live their lives that way. And we are seeing a, a, a rapid increase of, of children that identify as trans, but I mean, that's not inherently sexual. I don't think the way that you see your gender should not be inherently sexual. It's just how you feel about yourself. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. I just know that I felt a lot of things at 10, 12 and 13 that I sure didn't at 20. And, you know, we, the, the comment about know what we want to do, that changes too. I speak to kids all the time in classrooms and I ask them and even year to year, the answers are radically different because we're evolving and changing so much. I mean, every kid when they're eight wants to be a veterinarian. And then when they're 10, they realize that a lot of that's going to be gross. And I'm not trying to use an analogy to make light of the issue. I just think that, um, we ha we just have to be really careful about something that's going to stick with somebody for 60 or 70 years. Um, and also you could argue back, we need to be careful not forcing them not to for that long at time too. So, um, I, I, th I think it's just an issue that it it's, it's one of the few red lines that I have. Um, I, I think that it's a really slippery slope and I just want to be careful. Well, well I would say I, we both really appreciate the fact that you're even talking about it or at least being open and willing to talk to us about it. I think that that's a lot more than a lot of other Republicans have been willing to do or would be interested in doing. You know, this kind of dialogue, I think, is how uh, we make progress on issues. So I certainly hope we, we can continue to do it. I did want to ask about one other issue, though, and that's that last year Kentucky voters, uh, you know, voted down Amendment 2, uh, which you know, would have codified Kentucky's abortion laws into the Constitution. Um, you know, however, during the past legislative uh, session, we didn't see any change to the abortion laws uh, in the state to, to, to make them a little bit less or more lenient uh, at any at any rate. Um, so as governor, w would you support the loosening of any of Kentucky's abortion restrictions? Uh, I mean, even just to introduce some sort of rape or incest, uh, you know, exception or anything like that? Yeah. I, um, I've answered this one and this one's one that my, my head and my heart don't always line up. I'll just tell you, I stay, I stay kind of conflicted on it, but I also recognize, you know, these things are, are tragic, uh, you know, rape or incest, but a violent, violent sin, violent act on a woman, um, or man. But in this instance, you know, to have an abortion, um, you'd have to be a woman. And I think it's abhorrent. And we often look at these things too black and white. And so, yeah, I, I said in the debate and I've said it since, and it often cost me votes that I think that there, there has to be some consideration given to they to the woman in, in those instances. And I think that um, it's easy to just think about the life of that child. And I do, I, you know, but I have three daughters and, you know, my oldest is 10. She was in the, the debate hall that day, the floor below. And I, we're all answering these questions. And it's impossible for me to answer that question and not think of her uh, and, and my other girls and my wife. And so, yes, that's a long answer to the question of I think there needs to be a, a, a short window of time or but reasonable window of time 
uh, should that take place for a woman to make a decision? Because I think at that point, um, it, it would be between her and if it's an adolescent, her and her family uh, to make that call, not me. Yeah, I, you know, I think that every pregnancy, there's risk involved. And, and so um, I appreciate the way that you thought about this issue, um, even if we disagree on, you know, how how often it should be accessible. And we appreciate you answering our questions. You know, we we do have some Republicans on, but it's it's not always often. Um, and so we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your platform with us. And so uh, before we let you go, if people are interested in learning more about you or your campaign, how can they do that and how can they get in touch with you? Well, I appreciate that. It, it's been great to chat with you all. You know, one thing I'll say in closing is that, you know, I hope to serve our entire state. And while I am a conservative, that will include 44 point whatever percent of the state that's Democrat and 10 percent independence. And they deserve my best and to be served with honor and dignity as well. And so uh, I'm always open to having a conversation with folks. I don't just talk to people who agree with me. And so I appreciate you all asking me for folks that want to learn more. The Republicans, Democrats, moderates alike, you know, they can go to Keck for Kentucky. That's Keck, F-O-R, Kentucky spelled out dot com. And we're answering every question from the media, general public alike. We're really proud of that. And, you know, if you like what you've heard, not you all necessarily, but although you, if you like what you've heard, you can certainly uh, share it. But <laughs> I, I would just encourage folks to, to spread the word and help us get our message out. You know, we think it's a game plan that can move Kentucky forward. All right. Well, we really do appreciate you coming on. We really appreciate you sharing your vision. So, uh, you know, best of luck on the campaign trail, especially in the next month. Robert, Jasmine, thank you all. All right, Jasmine, how can people find out about us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKWAPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. And we have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.